The University of Central Florida Office of Diversity and Inclusion brings you Matters of Diversity with Dr. V. With your host, Dr. S. Kent Butler. And our guests, Dr. Candace Bridge, Dr. Nezanine Ranivard, and Dr. Pamela Wisniewski. And now, Dr. B. Otep, and welcome to Matters of Diversity with Dr. B. I'm so happy to have you all be a part of the podcast today. Today, we're going to be focusing in on women in STEM. We have some phenomenal guests today who are going to come and share their wisdom and bring us into what's happening on the university campus here at UCF with regards to the work that they're doing and how much they are just happy to be in their profession that they are in. And so we get a chance to talk with Dr. Candace Bridge today, who started working at UCF in 2014 after working for several years as a US Army Defense Forensic Science Center. Her research efforts are in developing new methods of analyzing trace forensics. She is also teaching um, forensic chemistry. So we're happy to have her as a part of our guest today. Dr. Pamela Wisniewski is an associate professor in the Department of Computer Science. And as a human computer interaction researcher, her work lies in the intersection of social computing and privacy. She is an expert in the interplay between social media, privacy, and online safety for adults. She has authored over 80 peer-reviewed publications. Let's just stop right there, right? She's authored over 80 peer-reviewed publications. That's phenomenal. And has been awarded $3 million in grant funding for her research. She is also the inaugural chair of the Equity, Inclusion, and Diversity Task Force in the College of Engineering and Computer Science. Very nice. I'll wait to talk about that with you. And Dr. Dazanin Rabavard is an associate professor in the Department of Electrical and Computer Engineering at UCF. She is a leader, communication and wireless network lab, and she has more than 100 publications. Let's <laughs> stop again. 100 publications on the topics related to signal processing, wireless communication, and machine learning. Nathanin as is a recipient of the NSF Career Award in 2011 and the UCF College of Engineering and Computer Science Excellence in Research Award in 2020. Nazanin has selected, was selected as a UCF Woman in History Honoree in 2020. In addition to teaching and conducting research, Nazanin is also passionate about mentoring um, STEM students and we work together in a grant and so um, she is a co-leader in the NSF Strong Program, a $1 million NSF grant to support STEM transfer students through scholarship and mentorship. And so with that, I'd like to invite my guests in and get an opportunity to talk with you all and why it's so important, so important for women to be in STEM. Dr. Bridge. Good afternoon. Dr. Ranavar. Dr. Wisniewski, how are you all? What's going on? I have Great no to be here. It's good to have you all here. I'm so excited to have you. I wish I was where Dr. Bridge was, though I can jump out that water, into that water. Um, but It is um, a lovely location. Um, I wish I was yes. there. <laughs> yes, yes. So let's start with Dr. Wisniewski. How are things and um, can you just kind of talk about what this inaugural role is and, and what you're doing over in engineering and computer science? The infamous words of this year is, uh, sorry, I was on mute. <laughs> yeah. um, so we are excited um, to uh -oh. So you know what, I'm going to start by saying technology is interesting, even from the computer science realm. You've been breaking up. Another issue with Zoom. So I think we lost. There you go. We lost you for a minute. We still oh. Have. oh, yeah, it said my connection was unstable. Sorry about that. Can no you worries. hear me now? Yes, yes. Okay, sorry about that. 
No uh, so we launched an inaugural task force in the College of Engineering and Computer Science that's um, across faculty, students, and staff members. Mm -hmm. um, we did that on purpose because we want to have all of those voices included. Um, another uh, foundational concept of this group is that we are giving stipends to the students and the staff who are on this task force because oftentimes we don't pay minorities uh, time uh, for to compensate them for the emotional labor that they're doing to help improve the culture and climate um, and so we are already starting to work on some great initiatives around um, promoting training and diversity and inclusion as well as getting some metrics across the campus to really point out some of the pain points and areas of improvement nice great so you've been at the university now for how long I've been here since fall of 2015. Um, I actually went up for tenure a year early and got it. So yay. Um. Yay. <laughs> well, you know, one of the things that um, especially happened, I think for minorities and women is that they have to work hard, work harder in order to be seen in order to be moving forward. And, you know, the testament of what you just shared um, is, is written in your bio there with you know over 50 um, publications and peer reviewed um, journals, which is the, you know, what helps us move forward. But in some cases, it's equally harder for uh, for women to kind of break that glass ceiling. And so, Definitely. And so much kudos to you for um, not only breaking that ceiling, but doing it, um, going up early and getting tenure. Well, I mean, I think that's one of the things that we as women need to communicate to other women is that sometimes um, the ratio that I give to my my female students is we have to outperform our male colleagues by threefold to get the same level of recognition in many yeah. cases. Um, there was one comment on my tenure review that said she did not exceed the criteria for tenure and promotion enough. Um, and so I, I wrote a letter in response to that yes. um, with the actual metric saying, well, I received threefold the amount of grant funding that uh, was required when, when I first started. I received, I got 10 times more publications than the, the, the suggested. And, and I think as women, we need to articulate our yes. productivity in that way um, because it's, it's important for being able to get fairly evaluated and yes. to receive recognition for, for our accomplishments. Yes, and I, I wholeheartedly agree with you 100% there. Let me bring in Dr. Ranavar, um, and, and, and you know, you have that same testament in terms of the numbers of publications that you have there exceeding um, what most people need to be doing or not necessarily needing to be doing. That's not, you, you do what your heart tells you to do. You do the work that you're called to do. And I get that, I understand that piece but also being recognized for, for, for the work that you do is really important as well. So how has this experience been for you in academia? Well, um, it has been definitely, it has been both sweet and also it had also some challenges. Um, so I guess what I did, I was just work really hard. <laughs> um, so as um, also Pamela mentioned, we need to usually work harder than our male um, you know, colleagues to be recognized and to be, to, to basically earn the respect that maybe other, you know, colleagues, they just automatically will be given even in the classroom or in the, you know, conferences, in the panels, uh, in any, you know, um, basically gathering that we have, you know, a professional gathering, we have to earn the respect. Uh, so we have to work harder. Um, and this is what we do. Um, uh, I, I did. Um, and I also had very good, very fortunate to have very good students to help me throughout this process. So I definitely appreciate all the um, basically collaborations that I had with other faculty, my students. Um, yeah, it has been challenging, um, but uh, I guess at the end of the day, it's also very rewarding. Well, thank you. And we'll come back to talk a little bit about some of the, our relationship in terms of strong grant. Sure. But um, I want to tap into Dr. Bridge, who also is a prolific um, researcher as well. And with for then presenting um, chemistry, you have brought in grant dollars and you now as a tenured professor as well. Um, what has your journey been like, especially um, coming from that perspective? 
Yeah, I share the same um, sentiments as the other panelists, right? Um, I walked in here recognizing that as a Black woman, I was going to have to do more than my colleagues. And as the first Black woman in this department, you know, I know there are a lot of people that were watching me, right? And it's not a sentiment that I take lightly. Um, because I remember working at the military and I was told the same thing that people were watching to see if I was going to succeed. So there were people hoping I would succeed so they could say it can be done. And then there were people expecting that I would fail so they could use me as a uh, another reason why other black people shouldn't be given an opportunity into you know, certain spaces. And so I take it very um, to heart and I always take what my dad says, um, your only job security is your ability to do the job. So when I walked in here and I said, okay, I know what my tenure requirements are. I made the goal to um, try to accomplish all of my tenure minimums within a year, within two years, two to three years. And I made that. Um, the only thing I was kind of diff I was missing was maybe one publication by year three. So in year four, um, I was encouraged to seek early tenure, and I was told I should not, even though I had already exceeded all of the minimums of my tenure requirements, um, almost twofold by my fourth year. Um, so that was a little disheartening. Um, but I said, you know what, it, it doesn't matter at the end of the day, come year five, um, I'm good. So I'm, I'm happy to be on this side of the tenure mark so I can branch out a little bit more, but um, it, is, it is a process and, and it's one where you have to be persistent, you have to be self-confident and you have to just say at the end of the day, um, I know what I bring to the table and I know that I can do this because the only person you have in your corner is you and your students, right? Because they're hoping on you to succeed so they don't have to find another PI in a couple of years. Yeah. So, so let's talk about that in general because I mean, each of you have talked about this struggle. Do you think that the struggle is changing? You know, it's 2021. We've talked about this for eons with regards to glass ceiling and being able to move forward. Is academia changing in any way to kind of support the narrative that women matter and that they can be at the table and that they do provide, um, you know, the same gusto that they think that men do? So um, what I would say is what the answer I usually give my students for any kind of research in HCI is it depends. Okay. It depends on the composition uh, and the goals of the university and of individual departments. Um, you have to have a critical mass of individuals who epitomize the change. Because if you're the only one who believes um, in equity, inclusion, diversity, and that it matters and is important and that we should take steps to get there, then you're gonna be fighting an uphill battle. But okay. if there's a critical mass of individuals who believe in those values and take action on them, then yes, it is getting better, but in getting better, it's very inconsistent and heterogeneous across universities and academia. Um, and so there's pockets uh, where we can say there are leaders, um, but there's also other places where, you know, they're back, stuck back in the 50s. Yeah, and we gotta get out of the 50s. Okay, other thoughts? I, I, would, I would concur with Dr. with what Dr. Wisniewski said. Um, there are definitely pockets, there are definitely people, um, and I still feel that there are um, people in upper management that strategically, uh, I don't want to say ensure, but, you know, they, they pick who they want in places uh, to, to lead in a manner that they are okay with. So, that person leads in a in a place of um, diversity forward, equity minded, 
um, with a sense of inclusivity, yeah, then, then we're moving in that direction and you know that that sort of um, sentiment is being portrayed with that upper administration. But if that upper administration allows somebody who, you know, tends to only have a white male centered uh, uh, office um, without any sense of other thought processes, um, that should really be a beacon of light that says, hey, somebody is not really taking this to heart. Not to say that, you know, white men don't do good work because they do, but, but the idea is that to have a diversity of thought, which is what we ultimately want, especially at, a, at an, um, a university level, to have that diversity of thought means you have to have people with different backgrounds and different experiences to bring that thought process to one location. So what if someone says back and, and snaps back and says, well, we can have diversity of thought and, and still be mainly all white men? What, what, what's your response? I don't, I don't, no, absolutely. I won't say absolutely not, but I'm gonna say absolutely not. <laughs> okay. I don't, I don't think it is feasible because there are, we all come through the world with different lenses, right? Um, and that's the end of the day. Like, even if you have seven white males from seven different countries, their experiences are not the same as the other people that populate that country with them. And, and, and that's, that's period. And I mean, honestly, oh, sorry. Mm -hmm. No, no, go ahead. Deb. Oh, I was just gonna, to, to back up what you're saying is that sometimes you have to give people concrete examples um, of showing how there are blind spots. Like for instance, mm -hmm. the way in which seatbelts for cars were designed. Do you think they were designed with women's breasts in mind? Um, <laughs> I mean, just really giving people very clear examples of how, how blind spots exist. And, and that's, uh, I think what, what Candace was saying is really important is like, just because you don't intentionally discriminate, that doesn't mean that you don't have blind spots that cause unintentional harm. Yeah, and to that point about, um, about uh, actual uh, examples, I had this conversation with my nephew over the weekend about how men, um, the needs of men tend to dominate the office place, right? point blank is the temperature that office buildings are set at is designed for men who wear suits and jackets, not the women who wear dresses and sweaters in order to look professional. And then, you know, women are always cold. And now, you know, there's this like, well, there's no need to be cold. It's hot in here for me, right? So the office, and there are several articles about this because I pulled it up to show him, but there are several papers that say, the temperature, the optimal temperature of office places were designed um, in the 60s or 70s to a male who is five foot nine and weighs 160 pounds some, or 180 pounds, something like that. Wow. No discussion of women, especially when women were moving more into the workplace. There was no thought process to say, oh, well, you know, all of the women in this office are, are tend to be cold or tend to be hot or you know, whatever the case may be. But it's another. What's wrong with them, right? right, right. <laughs> wow, that's pretty deep. I've, I've not heard that before, and, and um, wow. So, Dr. Ranavar, um, your thoughts? Yeah. So, first of all, that explains why I'm always cold in my office. <laughs> <laughs> so that one, uh, and also back to your question that you mentioned: Do you think it's getting better? I think definitely it's getting better and better, and. One thing that definitely can change is if we have more women as faculty, as students, as admin. Because one thing is that a lot of times is just statistics, you know. Uh, like, for example, our students haven't seen a lot of STEM faculty. You know, I grew up like I was um, at Sharif University of Technology, and then we, among like 30 you know, faculty, we only have one female faculty. And believe it or not, even that one female faculty had a lot of influence in me and basically boosted my confidence that I could also picture myself as a professor. So the more women that we have as faculty, again, uh, as like admin people, I guess the environment 
gradually will change. Now we are only maybe 10%, but what if we are 20%, we are 30%, then we won't be you know, as minority as before, and then our voices will be heard, and we will be more you know, comfortable you know, raising our voices. So I, I'm hopeful that gradually things are changing, and um, hopefully we'll see more changes and more, more people you know, be, be involved in uh, STEM fields and universities. So in the, in the male-dominated world, there's a lot of cutthroat and backstabbing that goes on. As more and more women enter into the field, especially your fields that you're in right now, and you don't have to speak about your experiences at UCF per se, but in general, are women sometimes um, in a position to be their own worst enemy when they get into spaces where they're still trying to all jockey for um, a place at the table? I mean, I, I think it can happen. Um, and I think it is a sense of insecurity when it does happen, right? If you, if you are the only, uh, the only vice president or the only senior director or the only uh, woman that sits up in high positions, some women who are insecure and just want to fit in might, you know, kind of fall in line with how the other men talk, right? I think there is a sense of being able to, to stand on your own two feet when men start saying some off-brand comments. And sometimes that's hard for, for women. And so either, even if they don't say it outright, just um, not saying anything at all can be just as bad. Um, I agree with that for sure. And what I see is that sometimes women who've climbed their way to the top have battle wounds because of it. And, um, and sometimes they forget um, that because they're at the top, they can work to change things so that other people don't have to get the same battle scars. Um, I've talked to women who are in high places before and shared some of my struggles. And I've heard, well, I had to go through that too. It was worse for me. It's better for you now. And and, you know, those types of narratives really just aren't helpful. Um, so I try my best when I'm mentoring junior faculty who are women to be like, okay, what can I do to help sponsor you and, and to see you succeed instead of saying, well, you know, I just had to do this. And so you're going to have to fight your way up as well. I mean, I think that's one thing that women, we really need to be careful of, of doing is making sure we don't lose ourselves in trying to play the game. Um, there's a great uh, short by Pixar uh, Spark Shorts called Pearl, P-U-R-L. Um, it's about a cute little pink ball of yarn that talks a little bit about um, women trying to integrate into the, the workplace and not trying to lose yourself. So you should definitely look that up. It's a really cool little video. It's about eight minutes. I'm going to watch that tomorrow, tonight. Mm -hmm. I'll send you the link. I can't send it to everybody uh, else, but I'll give it to you guys. Thank you. <laughs> No, I mean, it's, it's, it, those, those battle scars are real, right? And, um, and I am, I'm a child of immigrants, both of my parents are Jamaican, and they both came to America and made their way up. And I looked at my, my mom's pathway um, very closely, not because I wanted to get into her, her field, but just to see, you know, how she succeeds. And in almost every Fortune 500 company she worked at as a senior director, she was always put in a position where her boss is leaving. They ask her to operate as interim. She applies for the position. They choose a white male, either from the office that has had EEO complaints in some situations, right? But yet he, he still uh, is selected or they choose a white male outside of the office. And then they expect her to train him while being the subordinate person. And, um, and I think those scars are, they, they're deep and then you still have to operate in the sense of yeah, I'm good with it, regardless of how deep it hurts or how deep it cuts and how, you know, you see it could have been done better, right? 
Um, and this just happened to my mom two years ago when the CIO was retiring. The CIO told the CEO she should be the director. She, she should be the CIO. Um, and they ended up choosing her colleague who had had like five or six EEO complaints and several other issues with staff. And then, um, and then demoted, they put him in the CIO position and then demoted the CIO position to a senior director that uh, um, responds to the COO, this chief operating. So I'm like, so why get rid of the CIO position to make it a subordinate to the COO instead of just putting my mom who got the backing of the current CIO? You know, so it's, it's those sorts of games that are played that really let you know that in certain spaces, whether it's you're a woman, whether you're a woman of color, you, your, your value is not as good as the, the half-assed man that's, that's available. Not, no offense, but in this situation. <laughs> I'm taking myself out of the equation. I'm, I'm just here, I'm a fly on the wall. I am not representing the male species whatsoever. <laughs> that's what I'm, saying. I'm, just, I'm just your muse right now. So if you need to attack me, go, I'll be okay. <laughs> So let me bring in the international experience um, as well. And so Dr. Manavard, coming in and being a part of this conversation from the perspective of someone who has immigrated here, um, what's that experience like? And I know that you, the other panelists may have had that same experience, but I'm, I'm gonna direct this towards you right now. Yes, um, thank you for the question. You know, I'm from Iran, so I basically grew up uh, in an Eastern culture and Eastern educational system. And uh, that system is totally different than, uh, let's say, a US educational system. So um, believe it or not, you know, going after STEM field or engineering field, it was not something that uh, we were discouraged. You know, our girls in Iran or even probably a lot of, you know, Eastern country were in, in, uh, discouraged from. Actually, it was um, even very prestigious and very, you know, empowering if a girl wants to get an engineering degree, let's say. And in our country, it's most likely if you are very, you know, smart and you're hardworking, you either go to engineering and you or you go become a medical doctor. And this is for boys and girls, doesn't matter. So somehow gender doesn't play, play a lot of role in our decision. And uh, one thing that could also be because we are in a segregated educational system. So until we go to university, we are all girls classes and boys classes. So somehow, mm -hmm. although it has definitely disadvantages in terms of social interactions, etc., but um, you know, somehow these stereotypes that we see here, or you know, this gender discrimination that we see in the classes, maybe in the US, we didn't experience that. So I didn't have to fight with a boy to prove myself. It, it has been always, you know, girls and we are all smart and we are all, you know, good. So I, I, I think somehow we were shielded from this gender discrimination and these biases against girls. So that was made us, uh, for me at least, it was very easy. Yeah, I wanna go to engineering field and it was very, you know, respected all over the country. So I didn't have to make a really hard decision to do that. But comparing to the Western culture and especially in, in, in the US, I think our girls will have much tougher time deciding to go to STEM, um, basically because of the society, culture, um, everything is giving this message that uh, maybe STEM is not for you. Maybe you're not good at math. Maybe you're not good, girls are not good at science. And there are also thousands of other options in front of them that it was not in front of me as a girl. Okay, so that also makes it, you know, options are definitely good, but at the same time can be very confusing, you know? So when we, are, when we offer our girls a lot of options, we definitely need to also mentor them. We also need to guide them through, you know, help them navigate through this, all these options. And we have to show them role models. If they don't see role models uh, in STEM and let's say all the role models that media just project for them are other careers. So they just will be pictured themselves in those models, not in you know, STEM models or you know, in the roles of you know, leaders and you know, engineers or uh, scientists. So therefore, I think it has been a very different environment when I grew up, uh, it, was, it had its good things and bad things. And the good thing was for me that I naturally picked the STEM and I was so happy everybody, even culture was supportive of that. Um, but um, yeah, so definitely different, different here. 
So similar experiences for the other two? Um, well, I'm uh, born and raised in the US. I was actually born in Gainesville, Florida, up at Shands Hospital in Gainesville. Um, but I think for me, what's been the biggest challenge is um, using a lens of intersectionality in terms of who I am. Um, so for instance, I'm a first generation college student. When I was applying to colleges, I was living on my own my senior year of high school working at a Jiffy Loop. Um, and so I couldn't afford the application fee for colleges. Um, so luckily I got into the University of Florida on Bright Futures. Um, and honestly, academia is this ivory tower that um, makes it really hard to navigate sometimes. So um, where, you know, you talk to your colleagues and they're just. What were you going to say? No, I, I thought you you froze. Actually, I thought you stopped. Oh, OK. You had frozen. Uh, but go ahead. Right. Um, I was just going to say that usually faculty, there's a lineage of like, you know, my my dad, who was also a PhD. Um, and so when you have to navigate all of that on your own, um, it's really hard. Um, I also have a husband who has chronic disabilities. Um, and so I'm the single uh, breadwinner for our family. Um, and I, I'm a mom. Um, and so looking at all of these different parts of my intersectional identity, I'm half Chinese and I'm half white. So I don't have like a good cultural group to say, you know, these are my people. Um, and so in trying to find your way in academia, it's, it's somewhat of a lonely place, especially if people don't share at least some similar pieces of the background. Um, another thing that's hard in academia is I'm Christian. And um, usually I don't mention that because um, academia tends to be more agnostic or atheist. Um, and so just trying to be true to who you are um, and being successful in academia when um, like it's, we're already in like, the tail of the 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 bell curve of like the top percent because not so many people get PhDs and so it just gets lonelier and lonelier over time and trying to find the right support. Wow, that's that's very deep and and um and I think that's a really to acknowledge the fact that not everybody has a PhD. Um, there's there's this misnomer that you know there are a dime a dozen, right? You can you can you can get a PhD, but people persevere through some really challenging um, times to be able to get to that level. And I mean, and you think that in going through that, that you would not have to continually fight each rung. That, you know, once you've gotten past a certain level, that people will see you and respect you for the level that you received. Um, um, so I'm wondering from that perspective, how do we break the cycle? How do we break the cycle that once someone, because we try to, we compartmentalize that, right? In some ways we say that, oh, this person, yeah, they got their PhD, but they got it from, or they got their PhD, but you know, that's a lesser whatever, whatever. So we're still, um, there's some implicit bias or there's something that's that's placed into, you know, the type of school someone re received their PhD from. And you think about that and you tie that to what you just shared. There's a low percentage of people who have a PhD. Right, well, and I remember my first semester teaching at UCF, one of the student um, perception evaluations just crushed me. It said, Miss Wisniewski, because nobody should have ever given this woman her doctorate. Um, oh. And I still get reviews from students saying, because they go and look up my degree and they say, well, it's not from, you know, a top tier Ivy League school. And it's just like, wow, you know, um, but you have to realize that there's haters out there. Like I'm blessed to even have my PhD and to have been able to afford to do that. Yeah. Um, and so I think we have to be the ones to, to, have that self-esteem and confidence in, in yes. our own accomplishments. Yes. Um, because, you know, working at UCF as, as a faculty member, in some ways, isn't as easy as if we were working at another university, like one of the Ivy League schools. Um, 
sometimes you still have to work harder just because there's been studies saying that even the peer review system, there's biases against women and against people at lower tier universities. Even though they're and so, reviews. Right, exactly. Yeah. Um, because there's definitely signaling and, and some of the academic communities are so small that people know who it is, even though it's a blind review. Right. Um, and, and so continually having these these discussions of saying that, hey, you know, this is still a problem um, is one of the best ways to, to keep working on that. Well, there's something that you said that was really um, eye opening in terms of, you know, the work that you're doing and you have to kind of struggle and you talked about getting an evaluation that doesn't necessarily, um, it's not flattering. And I, I, I received those two, but I think the thing that really got me was that the evaluation wasn't about what my work ethic was, or it wasn't about what I was teaching in the classroom. It was more personal. Do right. you find that that's more of the types of evaluation you receive? Totally. I got, what is the best thing you like about Dr. Wisniewski's instruction? Her smile. Yeah. Um, what's the worst thing? <laughs> yeah. uh, so I, I think that's something that women have to contend with, especially in engineering and STEM fields more. Um, I have some colleagues at other universities who just refuse to look at their student evaluations or have um, one of their colleagues and they, they exchange because, I mean, that's that's a form of trauma is, yeah. is seeing that kind of abuse and harassment in, in a class that you poured your soul into. Right. Um, and so those same evaluations are being used to determine our promotion and tenure. Yes. Um, and so trying to find ways to, to shield women from that abuse and at a professional level, I think is something that we need to consider. Wow. Is that yeah. the same experience as you all have? I'm, I'd like to share. Uh, go ahead, Dr. But I think I was somehow fortunate. I never received uh, such uh, maybe you know personal, at least I would say, uh, comments from my students. Uh, and I, I guess I don't I don't share that experience. Maybe I just was lucky. I don't know. Um, I have received something like, yeah, she's very nice or she cares, but it's not very personal. But um, yeah, I don't. I'm, I mean, fortunately, I don't share that <laughs> negative experience. Yeah. That's good. That's good. I, I am on the bandwagon of not looking at my evaluations and I don't even give it to people. I didn't think about giving it to someone else to, to review it for me. Um, because when I was a, a grad student at UCF, I got my very first set of um, evaluations and I read them. I was like, you know, I wonder what it said. And somebody in the class wrote that I should not be in front of a classroom, I should be on OBT with the type of derriere that I have. And since then, I was like, wow, uh, yeah, I'm never, I'm never reading these again. And, and I think it's just a form of protection for me. Um, because if you were to see that sort of discussion of your body and your, you know, your being, um, yeah, no, meaning. deal with that. It's so, pretty demeaning, and, and it's and it's meant to, it's meant to hurt. It's not meant to yeah. to give you any constructive criticism. It's yeah. it's meant to hurt. Agreed, and and I don't know, and and, and in my experience, in my experience, um, I I also realized that nobody else read those evaluations. So even when I was going up for tenure, I felt like oh, I'm just going to throw this in here. No one's going to read it. So it doesn't really matter what anyone has said negatively or even positively. Um, I just have to um, write or put my evaluation together so they see the benefits that I outside of, of digging through that. Um, so yeah, I've, I, when I came back to UCF as a faculty member, I never looked at them. And it took me a couple of years to even share that story with somebody. And I was told, oh, you you needed to have reported that. Like that is something that should have been reported. But I'm really such an introvert that I was just like, I don't want no one to know. I'm just yeah. gonna lock it up and put it away and, and act like it never happened, which is not the best. Um, so, so that's interesting. Now you said you're an introvert, and so um, 
How does that play in? Uh, do you all see yourselves as introverts or extroverts um, when it comes to your own personality in the classroom? Um, I've, I've realized um, because a lot of people that meet me, they, they're surprised that I'm really introverted. Um, so I've learned that there is a term called social introvert. So I can kind of, you know, be on, I, don't, I, I, I'm, I can manage in situations. I have gotten to a level where I can speak in public in front of people um, and be okay. But then I need my, my alone time to kind of recover. Yeah. So. That's me too. I'm, I'm actually introverted as well. And people don't think that they don't believe me when I tell them that. But I mean, there's, there's, it takes a lot to kind of step outside of that. So, so how about you, Dr. Radhu? Yeah, the same, the same with me. I'm also introvert. And uh, I have to sometimes push myself, <laughs> you know, especially when you go to a conference, you know, a big audience. Uh, yeah, it's definitely uh, I also I have some uh, um, like fears of let's say a stage or something like that that uh, somehow um, I have to push myself. All right, Dr. Wisniewski. Um, with Myers Bridge, I'm uh, Briggs. I'm an INFJ, which is one of the more rare um, personality types. But I I identify as an ambivert, which is okay. somebody who's kind of in between the two. I think in some situations that are more professional, like I appear to be more extroverted. Um, but personally, I, I tend to, to be more introverted and, and keep to myself in small groups of people. I've never been a party or I think it was after college when I found out what a keg was. Um, so <laughs> I, I, I was kind of I was kind of uh, self isolated when it came to the college experience. Um, oh, wow. I have a question. Yeah. Uh, and, I, and I, you know, speaking of this introvert extroversion, I, I, I have always wondered because I got a, uh, I got a comment from one of the um, instrument installers who came and I spent the day with him setting it up because I wanted to know how my instrument was going to work. And he goes, "Y'all are different because most people say put instrument over there and then uh, they're gone for three days. Like the the scientists are just there, not there. So I'm wondering, is it more so as a PhD in science?" we gravitate towards getting a PhD in science because we are introverted. We kind of like to do what we need to do on our own. Whereas if you were to um, reach out to some of the fine arts or the English professors, are they just generally more extroverted because their their passion is in communicating with others? Like, wow, thoughts? I don't know. I, um, oh. I have my students do the Myers-Briggs um, when they join my lab as PhD students and introverts. Interesting. Interesting. I um, that's really funny. That, I mean, this is about women, so I, I'll step back. But I really quickly, I'll tell you that I am introverted, and um, I, I liken it to an actor. A lot of times, you hear actors say that they're they're introverted but they are able to put themselves out there on the stage or whatever have you um, because they get their energy from the audience, but also they're living their life to another character. So they're able to step outside of that introverted um, sense of self. And so I, I truly believe in that. And so I think that that's a part of it. I think that there are people who are extroverted and, and love to be around people. I don't mind being around people, but if I'm at a party, I'm probably in a corner sitting watching as opposed to interacting. But when I know people, then I'm more engaged in the process. So it's kind of a, it's hard to say I'm introverted and then people see you with these people. But I said, it's different when you know people than when you're going into spaces when you don't know people. Right, right. <laughs> That's that's really I, I always kind of I'm a people watcher too so I always watch people and I say huh so how does that play out and what are you, are you one of those people who um, kind of make up these scenarios about people that you're watching? It has happened. Really? That's so funny. I've never done that. I don't think I've ever done that. But I've I've seen different things where people like you know they'll make this life story about this person that they're watching and I'm like. Yeah, no, I don't go that far. It'll usually be like a child. Person. It's usually like a child running through the park and then the parent is running after them. And I'm like, I wonder what that parent is saying. And then it's like, oh my God, come back here, child. What are you doing? Like, 
So, okay, so we're getting close. I mean, this time has flown by um, really quickly. I mean, I'm enjoying having this conversation with you all. But what what are some things that you want to share with um, young ladies coming up, women coming up um, about STEM field and how to get them involved? I mean, you talked a little bit about mentorship and role modeling, but what are some things that will draw women to the field that you think is necessary for them to know? I think it's very necessary that uh, this, I guess it, it starts from the family. It's uh, when they are, when our girls are really little, maybe just uh, even in the elementary school. So, and the, or even before that, the parents need to basically introduce them to the idea of STEM or just take them to, you know, like activities, like for example, in Orlando, we have Orlando Science Center. So they have to somehow uh, get out of the shell that, you know, the girls only like to play with the dolls and the boys just play with the cars. So I guess it starts with the family. When we always go to a birthday party and we buy a doll for a girl and a car for a boy, you know, somehow we are shaping their, you know, their mind that you belong to this category and you belong to that category. So I remember when I, ha I, I was pregnant with my daughter, I said, I'm not going to paint the room pink and uh, purple. So I decided to paint a room like a yellow and green, basically gender neutral. So I was very cautioned about the fact that, no, I don't want to uh, bias my girl to just, you have to be like certain toys or certain colors. So it starts from the family, but of course not every fam family is educated. Then it's the start from the teacher, it starts from the elementary school, it starts from the us as you know role models you have to reach out to communities i do that i mean i should do that more often of course but sometimes i do that i go to my daughter's for example classroom i take a lot of you know electrical circuits and i show them and the girls are so excited about that and i remember last year two of the girls said i want to be an electrical engineer so if they don't be exposed to this kind of activities how do they know you know yeah. so we have to be very active especially us as you know professional women in stem we have to actively educate, you know, uh, other people, the families, uh, the outreach to, you know, schools, and we, you know, just talk about um, these um, these activities and just be role models for them. So that's my take on that. Yeah, I appreciate that. That's really, I think that's you know one to grow on too. I mean, you said something that was really profound. Um, not every family is educated or have that in their perspective, and yeah. so. You have to take that into consideration as yeah. you're to help raise and grow right. these individuals. Yeah, and you know, if, if we don't do anything about that, or if the you know educational system doesn't do anything about that, the media and you know the culture, the society will basically impose our girls with these ideas that you are not good, you are you're only for certain careers. So there are all these negative messages, and we have to basically actively counteract those negative messages. So I guess um, yeah. Yeah, the responsibilities are all us as educators, as you know, parents, as you know, professors. Right. Um, so I have to laugh when you said that you painted your daughter's room yellow and green. Yeah, I went yeah. automatically to the wall and the green plant next to you. My my eyes <laughs> just went straight to that just now. So I just thought that was pretty funny. Um, Other thoughts? So I I took I I guess I take a little bit different of approach. My my daughter's room is pink, um, and her favorite color is pink, um, and she wants to be a princess. But at the same time, I don't discourage that. I say you can be a princess and a scientist, um, because like I think we don't have to have either or. Um, and, and I epitomize that in my research is that I do human computer interaction research, which some oh. of my colleagues think is, oh, you know, that's the softer side of computer science. But um, one of the things that I put in my Twitter profile is I care about people. So that's why I study technology. And I think that's one of the the messages that we're not telling our girls is that the reason you go into STEM fields like computer science or other um, engineering is because these technologies make an impact in the real world. And by going into those fields, you can help people and you can help improve and benefit and push society forward. Nice. Um, a lot of the times we take a very male dominated approach in in talking about, oh, well, how hard STEM is if you get to solve like really complex problems and create algorithms. And, you know, I mean, that doesn't appeal to everyone. And, and yes, you know, I might be really good at some complex 
you know, um, technical problem. But you really need to make sure that you're broadening the view to say that it's not just about the technical work, it's about the application and, and how it can really do something to change people's lives. And so, well, I think it's really important, like um, Nazanin said, to, to encourage girls to not to break free from the stereotypes, but we also have to encompass those who who are okay with the stereotypes and say that, but it still can apply to you for for what you want in your goals. Excellent, I appreciate that. Thanks, Dr. Bridge. Yeah, and to add to what has been said, because I, I agree, I I think one of the things that we can do in the positions that we're in is to increase exposure and just awareness. Because I think a, a lot of times, even young ladies who are scientifically minded or think like, yeah, I, I am interested in this. They've never heard of these fields. They've never heard of these careers, right? So as a, a chemist, um, I was, really, um, even when I worked for the military, I tried to go to high schools and middle schools to talk about different careers in chemistry, because the perception of chemistry is you get a chemistry degree if you want to be a doctor, pharmacist, or a chemistry teacher. Like, there's no discussion about forensic science, product development, drug development, um, materials development, and a chemist is used um, almost in, in most scientific fields, right? And so I think once they're exposed to different career fields, different options that they're like, oh, I didn't know that I could do that. Um, I think that is also a key is that they're not, they're not even aware that it's an option for them. They don't look for it. Nice. Considering all of the negative stereotypes that we get from media, I, I personally feel that a lot of students stop searching for information because it's just easier to receive what is given to you. So nice. make a concerted effort to to provide that other side of the coin. So what's what's your proudest achievement? Yeah. Uh, I don't know. Um, I think I, I think one of ah I know what it is. So um, my my proudest achievement happened uh, a couple of years ago. I was invited to be a key keynote speaker at the National Organization of Black Chemists and Chemical Engineers. And when I finished my talk, uh, a young lady came up to me and she goes, Dr. Bridge. Um, I don't know if you remember me, but I was your student at Howard, right? And um, and I was really sad when you left the following year because you were the one that changed my life. You were the first woman, you were the first black woman that I ever seen with a PhD. And I was not interested in getting a PhD until I saw you because I didn't think that I could make it. And not only have I gone to grad school, I got my PhD and I am pursuing a postdoc right now. And when I heard that you were here, I needed to meet you to let you know. And in that moment, I was I, I kind of started to tear up and then I was like, okay, second up, second up. <laughs> but but just just to hear somebody say, just even knowing that you existed and that I I, I saw you, I could touch you, I could speak to you, and that you got a PhD that was enough for me to try. Excellent, excellent. Who would like to go next? Okay, I can, yeah, yeah, go ahead. No, you go ahead. Yeah, I guess my proudest achievements professionally is when I received my NSF career award, which is one of the most prestigious awards in uh, you know, our, our field. And, uh, that was my dream, you know, uh, achievement. Um, but on top of that, uh, I think balancing between my profession and also my role as a mom and raising two children also, I'm proud of that because uh, it takes a lot of effort to, you know, have a, to make a good balance and just take care of everything in your work, you know, student research, everything, and then also be a, you know, a good mom for your your kids. Um, so I think I'm, I'm proud of that too. <laughs> excellent, excellent. Thank you for sharing that. And 
talk to Winooski. Winooski. Uh, I keep saying it wrong. <laughs> that's okay. I'm used to it. Um, I think I share a lot of the same um, things that I'm proud of as Nazanin is as my NSF career was really, um, it, it was more of a acknowledgement of the good work that I'm doing from people who, you know, saw it and that really meant a lot. Um, and similarly, uh, what she said is like, my career is not important as important to me as as my family. So so being able to raise my daughter as a strong woman, I think is is still work in progress. She's six. <laughs> um, but I think really my greatest achievement at being a faculty at UCF has been seeing the growth of my PhD students. So for instance, um, my PhD student, Carla, she um, is being inducted into the order of the Pegasus. So I'm going to leave here to go to her ceremony. Nice. She's gotten a great internship opportunity. She's published more than many assistant professors. Um, and she's a Hispanic mom of two. Um, and when she joined my lab, she had no self-confidence. Her previous advisor told her she would never make it as a PhD student, um, that she shouldn't have kids in the PhD program. And she wow. now has more publications than that previous advisor. Wow. Um, and we've cried together and we've laughed together and just seeing her grow into the woman that she is today um, as well as my other phd students as well is just seeing them go from having a lack of confidence and it's all about your imposter syndrome to being confident young women and researchers that's where my heart grows and um, makes it all worth it i just want to add one more um the, the other accomplishment that I have is my very first grant um, for sexual lubricants. I, we had presented at the National Institute of Justice and a gentleman stood up and said he really appreciated the work that we were doing, but that we should kind of let it go because it would never get funded. Like there was no interest in um, evaluating lubricants in the absence of DNA for sexual assault investigations. And um, and so when I finally got my first grant for that, I was just like, yes, I can do this. Not only can I get money, but I can get money for a worthy cause because there's um, there's a lot of misinformation surrounding sexual assault investigations. And there's a lot of hope on only getting DNA, which we have found out is not present in almost in more than 30 percent of cases, more than 30 percent of sexual assault cases. So I'm. Um, that, that's the other highlight of my adult career. I cannot tell you all how honored I am to have had the opportunity to talk with you this hour. Uh, your stories, your narratives, and just what you have gone through just to kind of be at the table um, is inspiring. I hope that those who are able to watch uh, will, will recognize and I'll make sure that I put this in front of men, perhaps white men in particular, um, so that they can hear just what they have been, as a co collective, been putting women through. And, uh, you know, I can't take away what your experiences were, but I can tell you that I understand or I will do everything in my power to ensure that these narratives don't continue, that we start to open up space and hear people and recognize what those challenges are. You have all done phenomenal work um, on behalf of your profession, on behalf of yourself. I think it's more about yourself than it is about the profession. And so I just thank you for your time and, and the energy and wanting to be here and communicating with me today. Um, so that, that that's a very powerful thing. And I take that and I and I will respect that and move it forward. So I thank you um, for this. Um, thank you so much. Uh, actually um, opened up uh, a, a new avenue um, for how we can utilize the narrative of what it means to be a woman in academia. And so I appreciate that so much. Um, we have That's another um, episode this week, uh, next week, on Monday, we're going to be bringing in Representative Anna Escamani 
She's a Florida State House representative and she's a graduate of UCF. And so I'm gonna bring her in um, to kind of round out Women's History Month. Um, but thank you all for being a part of today's Women's History Month moment. And I think I cut you off, Dr. Bridge. You were gonna say something? I was just saying, thank you for the space to have this conversation. Oh no, thank it was a much, phenomenal Dr. conversation. Dr. Thank a, you for having us. No, thank you for joining. And I wanna have you back. We could talk about some other things. And, but um, I think that, you know, we keep talking about being an innovative university and wanting to move the needle. Um, we need women at the charge. Um, we need, I mean, anyone who can bring their children to work and still do the phenomenal things that you all are doing, it sets the stage for you know what excellence is, right? And, um, and you all have provided that. And thank you for sharing your excellence today. I appreciate it. All right, um, we're going to close out this episode, but um, I truly, truly appreciate all of you. Um, um, and um, we'll have to have you back sooner than later. All right, and it won't just be because of Women's History Month, it'll be because maybe we can have more intimate conversations about uh, what it is that each of you are bringing to the table. So thank you so much. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Bye, take care. Bye. 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 Thanks for listening to our show. This has been Matters of Diversity with Dr. B.